This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're talking to Seamus Malik Efzali. He's a writer and researcher, uh, mostly covering Iran. And unlike a lot of people that cover Iran, Seamus is fluent in Farsi. He definitely knows what's going on. He's going to be speaking about Qasem Soleimani, the commander of the Quds Force and the major general of the IRGC in Iran. Of course, he's been assassinated and there's been clashes between America and Iran taking place inside Iraq. Seamus is going to explain to us who was Qasem Soleimani and what's going on with the, uh, you know, is it a war, is it not a war situation with America and Iran. If you like what we're doing, please support us at patreon.com slash popular front. So there's a, there's a lot to go through. A hell of a lot has happened in the last like week, 10 days. But let's start with um, the assassination of Soleimani. What happened there? Maybe start right at that point. All right. Uh, on the night of January 3rd, uh, after... There were airstrikes on Qatar Hezbollah, and there was a sieging of the U.S. Embassy by the supporters of Qatar Hezbollah. Uh, there was a convoy of, I believe, about two cars, maybe three cars, who were leaving Baghdad International Airport. And then suddenly, there was, uh, I believe, a drone strike that impacted those two cars, utterly destroyed them, bodies scattered on the road, and... Uh, at first, the reports were that these were civilians who were in these cars uh, who had been killed. Uh, there was uh, also reports of a, uh, a rocket attack uh, somewhere near the area as well, so they were soon to be related. But then, there were scattered reports that uh, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, who is the deputy leader of the popular mobilization units, the Iraqi government's uh, organized militias, organized Shia militias, uh, that he was in the car and he had been killed which in of itself would have been a massive development because the U.S. is now picking off the Shia militia leaders. Um, but then on top of that, there were then reports that uh, Ghassan Soleimani, who, you know, head of the Quds Force, the elite force of the IRGC, uh, Iranian military commander, had been in the car as well. And these reports started scattering. And eventually there was a photo released of the body and there was a hand that showed a very specific type of ring. And that ring uh, eventually turned out to be Qasem Soleimani's ring that he wears all the time. There's some conspiracy theorists even with that. So there's a picture of him that has been put next to this image of the ring. Now, they're very similar rings, but they're just different, slightly different. One's got a different bezel. And like some some fucking like conspiracy theorist was saying to me like, see, it's not really him. It's a different ring. And it's like, you don't think he had two incredibly similar rings. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like he has so much money and power. Like it's so dumb. But yeah, so he's dead. Yeah, yeah, yes. The, 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 main, the main long way around that we get to this is that uh, it eventually came out very quickly through first PMU channels. And then it got to Iranian state TV that he had been killed in an American uh, attack. A massive, unprecedented assassination of a foreign official in an adversarial country's, part of an adversarial country's government. But something of this scale has not happened since, I, I want to say, World War II, 
with German politicians. And at that time, we were at war with Germany. Iran, we're not in an open war with. And the United States has decided to uh, assassinate uh, this man. Um, after that, there were pretty uh, massive ramifications. Um, there were videos that came out uh, uh, at Friday prayers that showed them announcing them, and there were people crying and sobbing and yelling, and there were people going out to the streets demanding revenge. Um, and then uh, the, 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 the United States government announced that they had killed Qasem Soleimani because he uh, apparently was planning an imminent attack on U.S. forces, and because of the AUMF, and because the IRGC is a designated terrorist organization by the United States, even though it's a state arm, it's a state military wing, uh, they had they had the legal they had the legal basis to assassinate him. Um, there there is a it's it's difficult to understate how reckless this is in comparison to the other options that Trump was uh, apparently given. Uh, there are reports coming in that um, he was given several options about how to respond to the, uh, the siege on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. And at least according to military officers, he, the option of killing Soleimani, who was suspected of organizing it, though the, that evidence for it is still dubious at this time, the, the option to kill him was presented as an outlier that he wasn't supposed to pick. It was supposed to make the other options potentially sound, the other potential options sound much more agreeable comparison. And especially because Trump had apparently rejected the option to kill Soleimani before. And they were, of course, surprised when Trump decided in the wake of that embassy siege and all of the coverage on Fox News about it that we should, we should kill Qasem Soleimani. Uh, and then, even though the military officers had pushed back on it, suddenly the narrative became, uh, I, I believe from Pompeo, who's saying that we should have killed uh, Soleimani uh, two or three years ago, or the, or sorry, from Trump saying we should have killed him two or three years ago, back when the IRGC wasn't a designated terrorist organization. Uh, then it became, when he went on Rush Limbaugh's show, that we, could have, we should have killed Qasem Soleimani uh, 15 to 20 years before this, uh, back in... 2000 kill him when he was born let's just go keep going back and back go back in time uh it's a, it's 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 become uh, just a side note it's become kind of clear that trump doesn't know really who Qasem Soleimani is because the rhetoric from the u.s government uh is that Qasem Soleimani is a terrorist uh and because the rdc is a terrorist organization we had the parameters to kill him um, and that he wasn't really that much of an official. That was kind of a footnote. In reality, he's this massive terrorist leader. But Trump then interprets interprets that rhetoric as him being like an Osama bin Laden-style terrorist who has been on the run for 20-some years or something. He's rogue. Uh, he lives in a cave somewhere, that kind of thing. Do you think that? You really think he was that clueless? I, I do, because th- um, in, in Trump had given an interview... Uh, to, I believe, Hugh Hewitt in 2017, 2016, I think after he was elected, where he was asked about Glossom Soleimani by Hugh Hewitt, 
and he did not know who he was. He was, he was pretty, he was somewhat explicit about that. And he also didn't know what the Quds Force was. And when he was asked about the Quds Force, uh, he thought that he said Kurds, and he said that I had been friends for the, with the Kurds for a long time. Um, it, 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 it's difficult to, I mean, we, we, we're, we're not, we're not unfamiliar with the idea that Trump is very unfamiliar with what he's doing as president. And I don't think that he really knows quite what he's approved, quite what he's done yet. I think, I think he thinks Soleimani is someone that he's not. Right. So let's talk about who Soleimani actually is then, because despite Trump thinking he's like Shia leader of some kind of Taliban type group and weird hardcore Stalinist types thinking he's a hero. Let's talk about who he actually is. Like he's not a good fucking guy, right? Like let's get down to it. Like he shouldn't, it, killing him was a very bad idea at this stage right now, but it's not like he was a good person that should have just been running around free. No, Ghassem Soleimani uh, was the, uh, as I said before, he was the leader of the Quds Force, the uh, elite forces of the IRGC. And, uh, I mean, just at the beginning of Soleimani's career, he was in the IRGC putting down uh, Kurdish rebellions. Uh, he was putting down uh, left-wing rebellions uh, in, in the uh, far, far other parts of the country. In Rojala. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and in 1999, um, during the pro-reform student protests that uh, wa wanted Iran to be a more free and open society, Soleimani was a signatory to a letter from other IRGC generals that essentially threatened the president, uh, the reformist president, Khatami, um, implicitly that with a coup d'etat, if he didn't suppress the protests. Um, aside from that, in Syria, um, he, and, and this goes, of course, goes into the later strategic stuff that we'll talk about, but he engineered uh, the siege of Aleppo that killed uh, untold numbers of civilians. Uh, engineered also um, other Syrian offensives that killed a lot of civilians, um, uh, was the backup, essentially saved uh, Bashar al-Assad's government from falling to the rebels. Uh, it's not, he's not out there fighting with socialist, he's not, he's not a socialist revolutionary, he's not. Well, he was quite anti-communist, right? Like, his whole life. He was very anti-communist. He started, he started his career fighting socialists, and there is no indication, and even though he doesn't involve himself with domestic politics in Iran that much, there is no evidence to suggest that he's a uh, reformist or uh, even necessarily that much of a political moderate like maybe Rouhani is. Uh, he's a right. He's a right wing Islamist. There's no indication that he is he, that he is anything else other than that uh, at the moment. Even if he is uh, the the quote unquote thorn in America's side, he's counter to Israel. That doesn't mean that he's politically agreeable uh, to the leftist contingent that admires him so much. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too hung up on all that because, to be honest, it it's just mostly an internet thing. But it is funny, you know, like internet communists who claim to be leftists uh, singing the praises of a man who hates their ideology and is right wing and Islamist, 
wants gay people to be dead, <laughs> like murders people, and is like a head imperialist of the RGC. Uh, like it, it's just mad. Yeah, I mean that's that's obviously internet communists are a whole different deal, and there's the whole discussion to be had about anti-imperialism and whether or not uh, you should be behind <laughs> right-wing governments, even if they're post-America. But that's that's a whole different thing. What what Glossom Soleimani. Uh, what made Qasem Soleimani so notable in the Iranian societal consciousness was that, and really in the Middle East uh, regional consciousness, was that Qasem Soleimani was maybe the most accomplished general of the modern era in that sense. There, there's a list, there's a map of just the things that he was involved with uh, over the past couple years um, all around the region. And the amount of places that he was in, coordinating different offensives, um, coordinating with different groups, with different disparate groups, engineering conflicts, uh, just going everywhere at once, doing everything at once. Um, I mean, he, he turned the tide uh, against the rebels in the Syrian civil war with the, uh, with the, uh, the Qusayr offensive. Uh, he then pretty firmly... Uh, made sure that the rebels would n never had any chance of winning the Syrian civil war uh, by engineering the siege of Aleppo, the reencirclement of the rebels in Aleppo. Um, he oversaw the battle to uh, take back Tikrit from ISIS, uh, which of course turned the tide back on um, their offensive into Iraq. Uh, he met with Peshmerga commanders. Uh, he he um, he oversaw the final battles against ISIS in Al Bukamal. He coordinated with Hezbollah in Lebanon after parliamentary elections to make sure that they had an effective strategy. Uh, and in all of that, he was then, of course, in Iran, visiting uh, disaster-stricken areas to help out uh, with, with relief efforts. Uh, he would visit holy shrines in order to um, enforce that kind of... Uh, that kind of uh, it's, it's difficult to describe, but there's a very big importance on Shia shrines in the resistance axis uh, uh, propaganda strategy. And of course him going to all these shrines helps in that. Uh, back And also back at home, he would do interviews and talk and um, was very, very personable. And he appeared in all of this Iranian media. And he was, he was, it's a long story short, Qasem Soleimani was doing everything at once and was the engineer behind the modern, the, the very, very small strip of modern Middle East as we know it, the current dynamic that exists in the Middle East today, Qasem Soleimani is very much responsible for it. Right, so he's uh, basically very, very good at his job, you know, like him, hate him, he was yes. very good at what he did. But what what does the general, um, you know, your everyday Iranian on the street, just normal guy, normal woman, what, what would they have, you know, what kind of impression would they have of him? Would it be you know, all state propaganda, he's a hero, or was it genuine, like, everybody loved this guy, or what? The The good thing is, and that we don't have to really speculate on this, is that the University of Maryland did independent polling in Iran uh, over the course of the last couple of years about the popularity of certain politicians, which included Qasem Soleimani. Uh, and just, I believe, either in 2019 or 2018, the last poll that they did, found that 82% of Iranians think positively of Qasem Soleimani. 59% uh, very much so, overwhelmingly so. Um, compare that to Hassan Rouhani, 
uh, who the anti-government protests were were against uh, just a month ago, month or so ago. Uh, now his approval ratings were even lower than Trump's. There's a massive um, gap between those things. Uh, it's not necessarily that they may think that Ghassan Soleimani is a hero in the sense that maybe you're describing where they, they love him and they adore him and they, 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 they kiss his feet and all of that, but there, there, is, a, there is an overwhelming uh, sense, a feeling. People love Qasem Soleimani because they, he, he's the defeater of ISIS. He saved the Shia world from, ISIS, from the, the ISIS scourge that was going to conquer them, that was going to genocide them, that was going to massacre them. Um, his existence uh, is a is a thorn in America's side. It's a thorn in Israel's side. He prevents this country from being conquered by the West, from being influenced by the West. He is that wall against them. And Iranian nationalism, being as strong as it is, being as strong a cultural force as it is, that kind of rhetoric, uh, irrespective of any sort of Islamist thinking, um, it, it's, a, it's a powerful motivator. Qasem Soleimani, because he didn't involve himself with domestic politics that much, uh, because, and because, because of that, he was able to exist outside of the traditional framework of the Islamic Republic. He was able to exist above the feeling that people have, where people hate the Islamic Republic. He existed above that. And that's why, yeah, why people are protesting against the government Qasem Soleimani stay popular, and people are now turning out to mourn him, millions even, to mourn him, to celebrate his life, to call for revenge against the United States for this action. Right, that, that makes a lot more sense. So he was more of an icon than a politician in a way. Ab absolutely. Uh, Qasem Soleimani shunned the political spotlight, even though he would almost certainly have been elected president if he had run. He the, I I don't want to repeat too many talking points that sound like propaganda, but the the feeling that Iranians had was that Qasem Soleimani, they they admired and respected the fact that he wanted to be out in the field. He wanted to be with other Iranian soldiers. He didn't like pencil pushing. He didn't like government bureaucracy. He didn't like dealing with politics. And there was a lot of respect for that kind of decision. That he, that he put himself with his country and not with any sort of political party. Right, and that, to be honest, that's natural. It doesn't mean that the people of Iran are like, yeah, we love what he did in Aleppo. No, It just no, means like, no. yeah, he, that guy's all right. Like, There's there's a complexity uh, that I talked about uh, earlier. Um, and and I, I don't, I don't not, I not just see it with the diaspora that I talk to, but also people in Iran, uh, my relatives who still live there, where people who despise the government who despise Khamenei, who despise Rouhani, who want Iran to be a free society, to be a democracy, maybe even a socialist republic or a communist state, they, they love Soleimani. He's, he's a different figure entirely. Um, the, the actions that they may disagree with or are against that he did in Syria or Iraq or any other, or, or his actions in Lebanon, even, even though people were protesting the fact that Iran was involved in so many conflicts in Lebanon and Iraq and Syria, the fact that Soleimani was so heavily involved in these, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's the imagery, it's the, it's, the iconog it's the iconography 
that matters. Right. I mean, this might be a very wrong and weird parallel, but it's almost, in my head, it sounds a bit like how, you know, Trump supporters will just forgive what he does because they like the character of Trump. It's, it's, I think a certainly, if it's a parallel in that sense, but even then Trump is a, is a partisan figure. He's a political, he's a political figure. Qasem Soleimani, and it's difficult, and that goes into another thing that I'll talk about later. It's, he, his popularity transcended political affiliation. Um, it's, 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 it's difficult to think of a figure in American politics, in European politics, uh, even in Russian politics with Putin, uh, that would compare to the popularity uh, and reverence that a lot of Iranians have for Soleimani. Because uh, one, one figure that I, I saw a lot of analysts and journalists compare Soleimani to, or try to, including myself to a certain extent, uh, is maybe General Petraeus, who oversaw the surge in Iraq, or maybe Jim Mattis, because a lot of people like Jim Mattis. Uh, but Jim Mattis' approval ratings were around 50%. At the end of his uh, term as Secretary of Defense, Trace, not really available. Uh, Soleimani, you know, 82%. Uh, the, the, the way that I, I try to explain it, I might try to explain it, is that after 9-11, there was this massive fervor of nationalism, of U.S. nationalism, uh, and, a, and a reverence toward the U.S. President, uh, George W. Bush, also for the New York City mayor, Rudy Giuliani, everybody loved them. They would get standing ovations. Uh, they couldn't go anywhere without people lauding them and celebrating them and wanting to to uh, to get revenge for the country. Uh, and George Bush's approval ratings at that time uh, were about 82, 83%, very, very similar. So if you imagine right after 9-11, right after, during, during this period of fervor where almost nobody, there was no space to oppose the war in Afghanistan, those states to oppose the, war, the Iraq War, uh, you were, you know, you were hated if you hated George W. Bush. Imagine if during that period George W. Bush was assassinated. Imagine that kind of what that would do to the country and how that would unite the country around him. And now you imagine that was Soleimani, who is a nonpartisan figure and has even more support from other people, and it was even more support from the majority of the population, and you see how th- this this has played out, how this has come to be. Yeah, that definitely puts it in context. So they killed Soleimani. What happened next? Iran has been saying a lot. America has been saying a lot. Maybe uh, just lay that out for us the, the last few days. Yes. Uh, so immediately after uh, Soleimani was assassinated, uh, the, the US government attempted to uh, kind, of explain, kind of explain why they did it. And during that time, uh, the Iranian government went into overdrive attempting to figure out a solution to this because there, even if Iran retaliates uh, in a way that is, I don't know, I suppose proportional, I don't know what that would mean, uh, America is obviously going to hit back with, if not war, then, I don't know, massive airstrikes, uh, crippling the oil infrastructure, as Lindsey Graham has threatened. It's, it's, it's a very, very, very big risk for Iran to take. Um, and it's... Iran has been led into an interesting position because they've always they've they've been constantly prodded and and by the U.S. government and its actions, uh, and there's always been this waiting for the the moment when war would occur, but that never really happened. What 
after after Soleimani, your top general, one of the most famous men in your country, one of the most important people in your country, after he's assassinated, what is the moment after that? What is what? what if that's not the the moment where everything changes and um, there's not a further conflict, then what will be? And so, because of that severity. Uh, the Iranian National Security Council went to emergency meeting. The Iranian Foreign Ministry went to emergency meeting, and in a really unprecedented step, Khamenei came in and personally chaired that national security meeting, uh, in order to personally oversee uh, what the response would be. Uh, during that time, uh, they appointed uh, a new leader of the of the Quds Force, uh, Soleimani's former deputy uh, Ismail Qani. Uh, who I can go into explaining who he is later on, uh, if need be. Um, and additionally into that, um, just a few hours ago, I believe the uh, minister, the uh, Iranian government announced that they had 13 different quote-unquote revenge plans that they could undertake, and they made sure to specify that it would not be done with any proxy forces or non-Iranian forces if the retaliation were to occur uh, it would be through uh, Iranian, Iranian official Iranian military means or governmental means. Right. So no Hezbollah, no Qatar al Hezbollah, no PMU Hashtag Shabi. It's going to be Iranian troops. Yeah. Uh, if not Iranian troops, then by some other direct Iranian governmental measure. Right. That was what they specified. Now, of course, in practice, who knows? But that is the official government line uh, at the moment. Um, aside from that. Uh, the, the, there's been a massive funeral procession that has been proceeding through both Iraq and Iran uh, at the moment. Um, and it's really, and the response to this has really shown the, uh, the two groups, the disparate, the disparate uh, societies that exist within Iraq. Because before this, uh, as, we, as, we, as we all saw, uh, anti-Iranian interference protesters came out in very large numbers. Uh, they were massacred by uh, forces that were aligned with the Iraqi government uh, by militias, by Shia militias. Uh, and they were still protesting out there. But after Soleimani's assassination, these massive crowds of people came in to mourn, to shout that America was a great Satan, and they... Pretty, and from at least from what I'm seeing, I haven't seen there. I believe there was only there was a new protest today, that was attended by um, a lot of people, but these numbers either met or dwarfed the numbers of Iraqi protesters that have been out here. Just an outpouring of mourning for an Iranian general, not Iraqi general. Uh, so in Baghdad, there was a crowd of people um, trying to get to. Qasem Soleimani's casket. They were frantically trying to get to it. Uh, in uh, Najaf, similar situations. The, um, there were lots of people around the uh, the Imam Ali shrine, uh, shouting, uh, chanting, uh, "Allah, Allahu Akbar, Amriki uh, al Shaitan al Akbar." God is great. America is a great Satan. <laughs> Catchy. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's not a bad chant. Uh, and after and after that, they went to uh, Karbala, uh, where similar response happened, uh, and and it was just there were there were I I remember from Baghdad 
um, an incident in Baghdad where just because the, uh, and interestingly, the procession was guarded by official Iraqi troops, despite the fact that this was an Iranian general, um, they went through the green zone. They took the body to the green zone just because of logistics sake, because they had to get it through one road or another, and people were not allowed in. And there was an attempt to break in to the green zone again, just so that these people could follow the body with them. That that was the level of of reverence that they had for this man. And then uh, after they left Garbala, uh, they arrived in uh, a a Ahvaz, the uh, city in southwestern Iran, uh, that had been the site of some of the most intense anti-government protesting against the Iranian government. I was going to say, there was like a, a separatist militant attack last year, right? Yeah, there, there was a separatist movement that has its base there. Uh, there was an, I mean, there was an incident during the Iranian protests themselves where uh, about, a, I believe, 100 protesters were led into the marsh fields in Ahvaz because one police officer saw a gun. One police officer saw a gun. And then they killed all of them, all of them inside that marsh field. There's a lot of, needless to say, there is a lot, there's not a lot of goodwill for the Iranian government, uh, certainly after that moment in the city. And yet, because, 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 because of Soleimani's popularity, and particularly because Soleimani made his name previously fighting in the Iran-Iraq war, uh, fighting in many successful offensives against the Iraqi government, defending Iranian territory, you know, people were coming in thronging by the thousands to meet Soleimani at the airport, meet Soleimani's body at the airport on the runway, and they just they carried him through. And uh, there was a video that I saw uh, from a helicopter showing the procession. And it just goes on for miles and kilometers. Yeah, I saw that. They're all wearing black, right? It's like a C down the middle. And they're all wearing black. And there were, there were I think, there were attempts uh, by uh, uh, Ahvazi separatists to say, and also to a certain degree by other Iranian dissidents, to say that these marches had been uh, coerced, that they had been forced uh, that uh, people were being threatened by employment termination. Um, I, I looked into these uh, as much as I could, um, but the two, I, I noted this before, the two sources that I was able to find on this that people were, were quoting that were direct sources was a WordPress website uh, called uh, Dur Untash Study Center, uh, which had an article about a month ago that said that uh, Persians in Iran were having more babies in order to genocide the Arabs out of the country. And there, there was an Instagram message that said, I'm being threatened with termination if I don't go to this protest. And that was about it. That was, that was about the extent of it. So the, uh, there's nothing solid. But, I mean... <sighs> I, I, I don't want to say, like, there's nothing solid, but what I'm going to say is it doesn't seem... How the hell do you get that many people out on the street, even if you force them? That's, that's the thing. There, there's, a, there's an example of uh, previous state-sanctioned protests that are pro-Iranian government in the past. Uh, for example, uh, maybe the Quds Day protests, or the... Uh, not Sorry, not protests. Demonstrations, Quds Day demonstrations, or demonstrations celebrating the Iranian Revolution that are attended by a lot of people 
But, you know, by and large, you know, people stay home, uh, maybe they'll go to the shops, have dinner. Uh, it's not really, there, there's obviously the societal expectation or maybe, maybe some, like some prodding and that maybe you should go to these protests because these aren't Republic is such an authoritarian government, but people, people don't really go to the, pro the demonstrations if they don't really want to. But I mean, with this, there comes a certain point when there are millions of people in the streets, when plane tickets are reported as having been sold out into cities where the procession is going through, where train tickets are sold out, when people are telling other people outside the country, you know, I hate, I hate uh, Khamenei, I hate Rouhani, but I love Soleimani, I'm going to this protest. This is not a protest for the Iranian government, this is an apolitical, nationalist event. When, when, when there's all these factors going in, you can't really you can't really say that this has been this has been uh, concocted that this has been uh, um, formulated by the Iranian government as this big fake show for the world to see because then you have to ask the question you know if twenty million people are out on these streets are you telling me that there's twenty million cops with with rifles behind their backs telling them to do this uh, it, it it becomes the 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 explanation to argue that these these demonstrations have been forced requires so much more information, so much more theories than just saying Soleimani was popular and there's data to back it up and therefore that's why people are out on the streets. Right, it's, I've just been trying to think of like a comparison after listening to that. It's going to sound dumb, but it would be like killing Gaza in the 90s in Britain. You know Gaza, the footballer? Maybe, but I, 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 do, I do, I do understand what you're, what you're trying to say. Like, yeah, like if they, if they killed Pele or something. You know what I mean? Like, you could be left, right, where everyone fucking loved Gaza. It's like, doesn't matter who he plays for, which club, just don't hurt Gaza. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm just trying to get my, you know, my, uh, my head around it because it, you know it's a very different culture. We don't really have anything like that. You know what I mean? Apart from you know vapid celebrity world yeah. i mean can you name one general in the british military i couldn't name i don't know the head of the british army mate <laughs> honestly i haven't got fucking clue i mean i heard his name the other day but i couldn't tell it to you right now yeah ex exactly exactly if you if you don't know the guy's name like even on the top of your head like don't even know what he's it's 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 a whole different culture so so what's happening next then you know there has been I keep seeing that they're slightly dramatic. People are saying a Katushka rocket has hit the embassy. Uh, the US base has been hit and blah, blah. And what is actually happening is a few mortars are landing kind of in the green zone, but not actually hitting it. And let's be honest, I think Iranian militias could hit the embassy right now if they wanted to. You know, I don't think it's impossible they could hit that with a rocket. So, you know, that's it's not quite going as crazy out of control as perhaps some people make out. But things are definitely escalating. Yes. Uh, so I, I, I do I do want to note, uh, I can't remember who said it, but it's very difficult to map out what a potential Iranian response to this would be because no equation factored in the fact that Soleimani would not be a part of it. When you remove Soleimani from the equation, the man who's been engineering this entire thing, it becomes extremely difficult to pan it out. If this was any other situation where Soleimani wasn't killed and someone else was killed, they go to him, right? What do we do? 
Yes, yes. Soleimani, Soleimani has all the contacts in the region. He has all the strategic experience that he can draw from. He knows what will elicit a response and what will not. Uh, except in the sense that he didn't know that what he was doing was going to get him assassinated. But that's, you know, blind spot. We all have him. There, there was a... The, uh, he, he was the go-to guy for the IRGC when planning all of their, all of their operations. They were planning their foreign policy. When you remove that, it's not like the Iranian government is crippled in the sense. There are other leaders in the IRGC who have the same strategic experience that Soleimani did, but they're not Soleimani. They, 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 have, they, they may have the same level of experience, but they have experience in different areas. Uh, it's, just, it's, it's, not, it's not the same. Although they can replace him, it's not necessarily the same. Uh, though though I, should, I should note that even if Soleimani was still here and he was planning out some response to assassinate a different official, uh, World War III, uh, my apologies, it's not going to happen. Uh, there, there's no real risk of this blowing up into uh, some nuclear conflict or all the superpowers of the world being drawn into the battlefield. Um, there's no... Russia, China... Our ally are have good relations with Iran, but they're not willing to back it up uh, against America for an all-out war that will destroy the Earth. Um, past that, however, uh, Iran can make things very, very bad for uh, countries in the Middle East, uh, particularly Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Um, even I, I saw in the media, uh, particularly uh, with. Um, royal-owned newspapers like Arab News or and Saudi Arabia or The National and the UAE uh, where it's saying, you know, Soleimani, horrible guy, uh, killed a lot of Americans, um, but, you know, we should de-escalate. Like, we shouldn't, this shouldn't go out to all-out war. Um, there were Saudi government officials. Uh, I believe uh, one arrived in Washington today to talk to Trump about de-escalating the situation. Because after, uh, after Khashoggi uh, and, and the political fallout about that, and after the Aramco attacks, uh, eventually no U.S. response to that made realized, Saudi Arabia and the UAE eventually realized that, oh, U.S. isn't going to back us up on this 100%. If Iran attacks or if, we're, if there's a war breaks out that Iran is involved in, uh, we're going to feel the brunt of this really badly. And even if the, the U.S. is going to be fine, there's no chance that Iran is going to attack the United States, uh, you know, blow up the Statue of Liberty or something like that. But Saudi Arabia, Iranian artillery, Iranian air force uh, could launch missiles against Riyadh. They could level Dubai or Abu Dhabi. Be a terrible uh, shame. They could close Strait of Hormuz. <laughs> it's it's not like it's not like there's there's a huge cultural, uh, um, that'll lead to our discussion, there's not a huge cultural loss in the sense that, you know, if Dubai was leveled, but obviously people are going to, a lot of civilians are going to die. No, no, I'm just uh, joking, of course. Yeah, yeah, I know. But there, there, there's a sense that the UAE are, are realizing that the, if the U.S. isn't going to help us, we need to make sure that war with Iran does not happen, because if... There's not huge rocket attacks and artillery barrages that destroy our major cities. 
the Street of Four Moves is going to get closed. We can't get oil out. There's going to be a massive run on the pumps. Their economy is going to collapse. Uh, there's going to be political upheaval. Um, any number of things could... Iran could make any number of things go wrong for the, for the Gulf states. Uh, the U.S. doesn't even really... isn't going to factor into it. Um, they, the Iran has the ability to retaliate in that sense. Uh, the IRGC uh, Major General uh, Mohsen uh, Rezaei, he went on Twitter to threaten that uh, if the United States responds militarily to our retaliation for the assassination of Soleimani, uh, we will level Haifa in Tel Aviv. Um, <laughs> Good luck. I, I, uh, yeah. Um, I, think, I think Iran can do something similar to what Saddam did uh, during the Gulf War, where... Scud missiles may get fired at Israel, um, or something along those lines. But ultimately, the Iron Dome is a very powerful defense mechanism. Um, there's no real chance, uh, even if Iranian media may claim that, uh, I remember seeing something like, uh, Iran could destroy Israel in 72 hours or three hours, uh, if, if, if they coordinate destroying all the water lines, destroying all the major cities, invading from all three corners, um, or something like that. It's not going to happen. Um, they, they, they can make things difficult for Israel, but they can't deliver the, the level of damage uh, that they could on uh, Saudi Arabia or the UAE. Um, there's, also, there's also this attempt by a lot of American pundits uh, and U.S. conservatives to imply that uh, Iran, when, when, when the, when Pompeo was talking about Soleimani planning an imminent attack on Americans, he was likely describing, like, an attack on, like, American troops in Iraq or something like that through proxies, um, though the evidence that an imminent attack, uh, has not been provided. I was gonna say, even that, I mean, come on. Yeah, e even that, even that. The, and there's also, I think Pompeo came out, uh, and said that the attack was imminent in the sense that, Qasem Soleimani has already killed Americans. So he might so, do it again. So he might do it again and also, like, it already happened, so that's imminent. I don't know. Like, he's a previous offender. He's a previous offender, but it's 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 nonsense. But he, I, even in that case, he was cl pretty clearly referring to, like, actions in Iraq. But then people who work at the Federalist or at Fox were thinking, Oh, Iran's gonna attack New York City? Like, if you, you know, Iran, if you attack New York City, we're gonna level Tehran. Yeah, the, these are guys that think, like, Team America was a documentary. Like, the punditry from them has, uh, honestly, it's been insane. It's almost like they want the war to happen, you know? It's terrifying. No, no, they, they want, they want the war. They want, people have been, and, and, and it shows with the response that a lot of people have had to the assassination of Soleimani, like, from Trump. They think that Soleimani was a bin Laden type figure or they want Soleimani to be a bin Laden type figure who is constantly engineering uh, terrorist attacks from afar, uh, destabilizing the region from his, his mountain complex, uh, mysterious, uh, rogue, all these things. They want an enemy like Al-Qaeda was back in the 2000s that they can rally around the flag about that they can, they can really, really hate like they used to, but that's not really how it is. He was a, he was in, he was a military official in a foreign government. The dynamics are, are different, but of course, that doesn't matter. Iran's going to attack Statue of Liberty or something or whatever. Um, 
the the when I, when I, when I, in a roundabout way, uh, I don't think that the like uh, a retaliation for Qasem Soleimani is going to involve an attack on American soil. But I think if it were to happen, it would involve the immediate neighbors of Iran. If if not using uh, Iraqi proxies like they claim, if that turns out to be true, then maybe something like Saudi Arabia or the UAE, or maybe a direct attack on military installations in that area. Who knows? Yeah, and you don't think they're going to follow through with the, uh, where they put like, what, 80 million pound or dollar bounty on trump's head i was reading like i thought that was so funny oh there there was there was some there was some stupid like uh, i think it was like on a tv show someone said that uh this number of people were killed by the united states therefore we are putting a million dollars uh for for every one of them on trump's head it was a it was a stupid tv clip but then the mirror ran with it for some reason, I don't know. Yeah, there's a hell of a lot of disinformation around this. And part of me thinks it's just because not that much is known about Iran. I mean, like, I study, you know, everything going on in the Middle East. And, I, you know, I know Iran is technically not the Middle East, but you know what I'm saying. Um, and I know fuck all about Iran, honestly, you know. So God knows what everybody else is thinking, you know what I mean? Not that I would know, but just, just you know what I mean? Like, it's just a very hidden place almost. Yeah, the Iran government... To its benefit and also to the detriment of others, uh, is an extremely opaque institution. Uh, Not only are its politics, its governmental system extremely hard to understand with the Guardian Council and how it relates to Parliament and the Assembly of Experts and all of this, um, nobody really knows the inner machinations of what Interior Ministry officials are, are thinking or what military officials are discussing because you know, they don't really talk to the media unless they want to. And the media that they talk to are going to be uh, very receptive to the idea that they're not talking to the media. Their government, they're very, very pro-government. Um, there, there's a there's a, a feedback cycle where the government isn't transparent and the media, that media landscape that Iran's government has cultivated is fine with that lack of transparency. There's no push to make it more transparent in any large meaningful way and thus it it perpetuates itself right yeah um tell us about um Soleimani's successor the the new leader of the the Quds force yes so uh Ismail Qani uh he was a longtime deputy to Qasem Soleimani he worked in the IRGC uh, as well he is the new leader of the Quds force uh Qani uh was the head of uh, the IRGC's operations in uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, so he was involved in, uh, what many people don't know, is that he, uh, the IRGC was involved in helping the United States uh, identify Taliban targets in Afghanistan uh, in the initial invasion phase. Uh, so he was active at that point. Um, he's also been active, he's, he's been active in that, in that theater for a while. Um, he has had some, at least according to the sources that I've read, he has had some strategic disagreements with Soleimani at some points, but they are quite similar in that outlook. Uh, the main disagree, the main differences between Soleimani and Ghani is that Soleimani uh, was a very public figure. He was a very he, he, he made his, he had a public persona based on his previous work in Syria and Iraq and Lebanon. 
but he embraced that figure wholeheartedly. He loved being a public figure. He loved um, uh, saying poetry and being personable with the people that he met. He would joke around with civilians. Uh, he, he, he enjoyed being the personable uh, military hero type. He enjoyed that public, public uh, persona. Uh, Ka'ani, on the other hand, uh, is very... Um, he's described by people around him as humble. Uh, he doesn't like talking to the press that much. Uh, when he does speeches, he doesn't include uh, that much poetry, or it doesn't really flow as well as Soleimani speeches. It's very, very rehearsed. Um, he chooses his words very, very carefully. Uh, there was an interview that he did, uh, the first one that I've seen in a very long time, that he, uh, after Soleimani's death, where he was talking, and he takes very, very long pauses in between his words. Uh, he doesn't say much at all. Uh, he doesn't look the interviewer in the eye. Uh, he is a very, very withdrawn figure who does not like the spotlight. Uh, that can work to Iran's uh, benefit in some sense. Uh, he works kind of like a more traditional military commander in the sense that he doesn't seek out uh, fame and glory in that sense, uh, but also they don't, Ismail Ghani is not really a figure that is made to be rallied behind in the same sense. He doesn't have, um, at least not now, things could change, I don't know. But right now he doesn't, he, he doesn't, he doesn't want the persona that Soleimani had, uh, nor do I think he can have the persona that Soleimani had. Um, the differences between them are mostly, uh, subjective, they're mostly surface level in their, in their personas, but Soleimani's popularity was derived from his persona. You, so that's important. It's not, uh, something to be, uh, cast off as a thing to discuss, uh, in of itself. Uh, other than that, uh, not a, not a, not a whole lot. Uh, he wasn't involved, uh, very much with, uh, Soleimani's operations in Syria or in Iraq. Um, well, he has war experience. It's not in the theaters that many people would associate with Soleimani uh, to a large extent. And militarily, then, do you think he'll make many changes to the Quds force, or will it just be basically copying what Soleimani did? Nothing. I, I don't. I don't know if he can copy exactly what Soleimani did because Soleimani really was just able to juggle everything at once. Uh, that remains to be seen. But whatever strategic disagreements uh, Soleimani and Ghani had, they weren't severe or significant enough where I can forecast a severe uh, parting of ways between the old uh, Soleimani strategy. There, there's nothing that indicate. I, I don't know if it can be as strategically complicated as Soleimani was able to do, but that general outlook, that general strategic outlook, uh, probably will remain basically the same, yeah. Um, and can you go a little bit into uh, the early life of Soleimani? Well, I just want to kind of get an idea of why he was so good. I know he was um, he was in the IRGC from like a really quite a young age, right? Uh, yes, yes. So Soleimani, I mean, part of the public persona of Soleimani uh, is because he came from a working class family. He wasn't, uh, uh, like a, uh, he didn't come from like a notable family or some kind of political dynasty. Uh, he, he was born in the fifties. Uh, he worked, uh, he was, he was from the city of Kerman. Uh, he was a uh, construction worker for a while. Um, he was a contractor for a while. Uh, he would go to the gym. 
very, very normal, rural, uh, middle-class Iranian life, working-class Iranian life. Um, he wasn't that religious at all, uh, despite the organization that he would go into. Um, after 79, he joined the IRGC, um, and he, uh, when he, when he, when he, he, during that, during, in 79, he did, he, he worked, uh, to put down the, uh, Kurdish rebellions, um, but then, Iran-Iraq war happened, and he famously said, I entered the, uh, war on a 15-day mission, and ended up staying until the end. We were all young and wanted to serve the revolution. Um, during the during the eighties, uh, Soleimani was involved in a lot of successful operations against uh, Saddam Hussein. Um, in in particular, uh, he he was involved in uh, Operation Merced, uh, which was the attempted MEK invasion uh, of Iran, spearheaded by Saddam's forces, where um, all of all, which was the MEK, which is considered by many to be a cult now at this point, they, they, uh, entered in through the West of the country and they pierced into the middle of the country and the IRGC and the Iranian army were able to surround them, uh, kill thousands of them and send them running back to Iraq. Uh, and it was considered the last major operation of the war. It was a, was what effectively destroyed Iraq's ability to counterattack against the Iran's counter invasion. Um, it, it, it was it was what it's an operation that is cemented in the minds of many, not just because uh, there's a public holiday about it now. Um, after after the Iran Iraq War, uh, he remained in Kerman for a while. Um, didn't really involve himself that much, uh, but in in 1997 he uh, became the commander of the Quds Force, and that was what really catapulted him uh, on the path to uh, the I don't know what you call it the stardom that he had in Iran. Um, he wasn't that notable at the time that he signed the stu the letter that uh, asked Khatemi uh, to put down the student protests, but he became notable in 2001 when diplomats that were under his direction asked, uh, were, were tasked with coordinating with the Americans to identify Taliban targets uh, in Afghanistan during that initial invasion phase. Um, despite the fact that they were quite helpful in that regard, uh, in 2002, uh, George W. Bush declares Iran to be the axis of evil, and because of that, obviously, uh, that kind of coordination stops. Um, after that, uh, there becomes this uh, realignment towards focusing on Hezbollah. Uh, Soleimani uh, uh, was involved in coordinating uh, Hezbollah's response uh, during the 2006 war. There was a painting that I saw um, showing uh, Nasrallah uh, Mugnia, uh, former Hezbollah commander, and Soleimani uh, in an apartment block in Dahia, uh, which is a lower suburb, a southern suburb of Beirut. They were all in one room uh, at that time, and the, the famous story goes is that uh, Israel was about to airstrike that apartment, and it would have killed Nasrallah Mugnia and Soleimani. And if that had happened, 
you know, Israel would have won that war, but they managed to escape just in time. And that, that, uh, that massive, uh, quote unquote victory, uh, Israel would call it a ceasefire, but the, um, the, uh, expelling of Israel from Lebanon, uh, made Soleimani much more notable. Uh, he was then promoted to major general in 2011, and all during this time, even though he was coordinating a lot uh, and was involved in many strategic operations, he wasn't that famous to the Iranian public. Uh, all of that, of course, changed uh, in 2012, uh, when the Syrian civil war really entered its most violent phase. Uh, Soleimani was uh, involved uh, with with obviously as as part of the RGC was involved in coordinating with uh, the Bashar al-Assad's government in trying to figure out a way to turn the rebels back, and they managed to do so during the Al-Qusayr offensive uh, near Homs, where uh, Bashar al-Assad's forces under the direction of Soleimani were able to and Hezbollah were able to rout the rebels from that area. And it managed to turn the tide against them, which would then, of course, lead to Soleimani uh, organizing in Aleppo. And after and after he started coordinating in Aleppo, the thing that really catapulted him into popularity was when he, when uh, ISIS uh, did their major invasion of northern Iraq. Uh, they captured Mosul, they captured Tikrit, they captured Fallujah, uh, they captured all these cities. And Soleimani was called in as the PMU was being formed to uh, strategize the response to that, and he uh, successfully strategized the way to take back Tikrit from ISIS. He was involved in the operation to take back Fallujah, um, and those operations uh, made their way into Iranian news, and they were very well reported, and that narrative of fighting against ISIS, they being the hero that defeated the ISIS scourge. As I previously mentioned, that was going to genocide uh, Shias off the face of the earth, uh, the Iranian culture off the face of the earth, that threat. Uh, it, it, became, it became what he was known for, and his popularity grew, uh, I believe, uh, in 2016, about 70% of Iran's approved of him. Uh, and then by 2018, as the Syrian civil war, uh, the major phases of the Syrian civil war uh, came to a close, uh, that popularity had risen to about uh, 82%. And, you know, in all that time, he had been not only involved in Syria in uh, smaller operations, uh, he had still was still coordinating with Hezbollah in terms of politics, which also nerded him his notoriety. Uh, he was still very heavily involved in Iraq, coordinating with Shia militias. Um, and that has continued. It will, well did continue uh, up until his assassination, and it kept that uh, that notoriety going. Right. Um, what was it then that specifically made him good, though? Other than the experience, like when he's in the field as a commander. I mean, surely someone has said like, "Oh, he's this way. That's why he's good." You know what I mean? I'm just trying to figure it out. Yeah. It, 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 I, I've, I've said this before, but the ability to the, the thing that everybody points to is that Soleimani uh, was able to juggle so many things at once um, and, and think about strategy, of so many different strategies at once. Um, at the time of just in Iraq, uh, he was tasked with 
uh, working with Hezbollah, working with all these Shia militias, and trying to figure out a way to take back all of these cities. He would formulate uh, different battle plans uh, alongside other battle plans. He would be able, essentially, he was able to have all of these strategic plans in his brain, and he was able to work them out uh, all at the same time. He was able to see the big picture, not just the big picture, but the specifics of it. Uh, he, he was able to keep his mind on many different things at once, and that allowed him to have a certain outlook uh, that, would, that was able to uh, just be able to see the future of what his actions would do uh, and prepare based on those kinds of outcomes. There wasn't like a specific, I guess, uh, action that he undertook uh, that I could point to, but Soleimani was different than... I mean, if you compare... I mean, a good comparison just to show what, what we're dealing with. I mean, we've all seen uh, the Syrian Arab army attempt to take back uh, cities from the rebels when they don't have air power. Um, it's just... It's a joke. Yeah, it's a joke. They're throwing people at the forces. There's no strategy. Uh, it's just... it's just Either it's a wave attack or people are just kind of going anywhere but once and then... If they're fighting against ISIS, for example, they get routed, they're running away. Uh, there's no uh, coordination between them on retreating. Uh, but then Soleimani comes in, who knows how to run a military, who knows the benefit of organizing your military, having an exact battle plan in mind, knowing the terrain, uh, knowing the culture of the people that they are fighting with, uh, no, knowing, knowing both the enemy, the territory that you're fighting on, and also knowing your own forces and their capabilities. When you're, when you, when you have all of those things, compared to the forces that you're tasked with fighting, with tasked with fighting with, for example, the Syrian Arab army, that is a massive help to them. Uh, when you're talking about disparate Shia militias, otherwise might have trouble working together, that level of strategic um, ability is a massive boon because it allows them to coordinate better. Um, when you're talking about fighting an asymmetric force like ISIS, using a traditional army that might be built on nepotism, uh, like Syrian Arab army is, you need to fight asymmetry with asymmetry. And because the IRGC is built on that on asymmetric warfare, that is also a massive boon to him. Soleimani is trained in that asymmetric warfare, and that it allows him to fight ISIS, allowed him to fight ISIS more effectively. Um, it's just a whole factors of things. Knowing, be, being, actually knowing how to, <laughs> knowing what strategy is, what effective military strategy is in a region that seems very much devoid of it, that doesn't really know how to deal with asymmetric forces. That That is why Soleimani was as successful as he was. That he was able to not only understand and process what he was tasked with, but also was schooled in the necessary training that he was able to counter it with. Right, yeah, makes sense. Um, lastly, uh, I just want to go back to something we kind of spoke about at the start. You said you, you honestly don't think Trump exactly knew who Qasem Soleimani was when he kind of, I guess, said okay on the assassination. 
So where do you think this came from then? You know, if he didn't know who, I doubt he would suddenly say, well, let's kill that Soleimani guy. And no one would go, hey, mate, like, don't kill him. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Someone has said, let's do this. And Bolton's not there. So <laughs> who is it? I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that it's probably Pompeo. Uh, Pompeo has, uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, has been very support, publicly supportive of this move. Uh, there was, I, I believe there were some reports saying that he had suggested this move uh, either a couple months ago or a couple years ago. Um, Pompeo uh, has been very, has been not necessarily as hawkish. See, um, the difference between uh, Pompeo and uh, Bolton is that Bolton is so an- uh, so not anti-war. Bolton is so pro-war that when Trump inevitably uh, says no to either a strike on Iran or going up against North Korea, um, Bolton's gonna push back on Trump with that because Bolton doesn't really understand that uh, Trump's brain doesn't like process information. Correctly, he st- he thinks that he's someone that uh, Bolton thinks that Trump is someone that he could debate with. Uh, Pompeo understands Trump that he really just needs to. Ex- if he disagrees with Trump on something, he just kind of needs to explain it in a certain way to Trump that he will agree with him on this. If he if he if he defers to Trump, if he agrees with them on so many other things, he can eventually convince them of something. What I think probably happened is that, if not Pompeo, someone under Pompeo's direction explained very briefly who Soleimani was, saying that, you know, Soleimani, you know, he probably engineered that that siege on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. Like, do you think we should kill him? And Trump... Oh! I, he doesn't know, like... Trump has no idea who Soleimani, like, is in the hierarchy. He doesn't know how important he is to do the strategic balance in the Middle East. He just hears, oh, like, this guy? He, he, he sieged our embassy? You know, we can't take that. We gotta take him out. He doesn't understand the ramifications of the action that he's doing. He just knows the bare minimum of information that he led some action that he wasn't a fan of. And then, therefore, we gotta kill him. I don't think it's any more significant or sophisticated than that if i'm being honest yeah pompeo in the uk we would say is a shit stirrer yeah one guy it's just like hey he said your mom's fat (laughs) something ridiculous you know what i mean to get people to clash yeah yeah no 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 disagreement here no disagreement here oh dear okay mate um is there anything else you want to say before we go uh nah i I think i think i've gone over everything that i need to i need to say about glossom Soleimani. Yeah, it's very thorough, man. Thank you very much. Um, Seamus, where can people uh, find you? And please uh, pronounce your surname again for me. Yeah, uh, Seamus Malakafzeli. Malakafzeli, uh, got it. Malika- yeah, man, you got it. There, there was, uh, on Twitter, I am at Seamus underscore Malik, M-A-L-E-K. Uh, you can find my stuff, my, my full portfolio on my website, uh, Seamus hyphen Malikafzeli, M-A-L-E-K-A-F-Z-A-L-I dot com. Uh, hopefully <laughs> this doesn't become uh, a huge conflict. That's all I can say. Yeah, hopefully we'll get drafted. <laughs> Just memes for now. Yeah, all right, mate. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. All right, thanks, man. 
Right, Seamus, so about an hour after we got off doing the podcast um, about um, Qasem Soleimani, fucking Iran has just hit several um, US bases and what have you, or installations across Iraq, ballistic missiles over a dozen so far, very serious. Um is there anything you want to send me or anything you want to say in this voice clip just uh we can tag on to the end of the podcast just to uh you know mention this quickly so update um about an hour after we recorded this podcast iran fired tens of ballistic missiles at uh al-assad air base uh, in anbar province of iraq uh which is operated by the United States Marine Corps and is jointly used by the United States and the Iraqi military. Uh, obviously, a massive escalation uh, that I personally did not expect to happen uh, so quickly and so overtly. And right now, the IRGC has just announced that any country that facilitates the United States' response to this retaliation for Qasem Soleimani's assassination uh, will be targeted as well. And additionally, that Israel is considered to be one and the same with America in its responsibility for Soleimani's death, which could lead into a lot of retaliation for that country in the future, though uh, I am not sure of what that retaliation against Israel could mean. Um, President Trump, I've heard reports that President Trump is going to address the nation shortly. The Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, just visited him and, you know, it's up in the air. And since that happened, Trump came out, um, said that no US troops were killed in the bases, no Iraqi troops were, the ba were killed in the bases. No one was killed, luckily. The only positive to come from this is that nobody was killed. The worst situation is obviously, in my opinion, for the Iraqis, you know, these two powers fighting in their back garden um, and there's nothing they can do about it. It's fucking terrible. But it does look like now it's kind of calmed down. It's almost like to save face. I think Iraq, uh, sorry, Iran, you know, had to hit these uh, these areas and surprisingly they no one was in them. Um, so yeah, maybe that was like a saving face move and now it's been de-escalated, but for now it's definitely quiet. But as you can tell, we've just done these two voice clips and now this, um, you know, things could kind of spiral out of control again fast. But yeah, we'll, we'll keep everybody updated best we can. But yeah, cheers. That was Seamus Malik Efzali speaking about Qasem Soleimani, Quds Force, IRGC, the clashes between America and Iran that have been taking place in uh, Iraq this week. Uh, do follow Seamus, he's a very good lad and extremely knowledgeable on Iran. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, you want to see this keep moving forward, keep growing, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash popular front there are bonus episodes you get access to the research discord which honestly there's a lot going on there every time i look at that i'm like fucking hell um you know we have all sorts they're, they're like doing like their own investigations in there like it's it's it's, it's kind of like inspiring every time i look at it, i'm like right i need to work harder like it's excellent 
So yeah, uh, access to that, uh, narrated articles, uh, you get the episodes before everybody else, or at least, you know, before the, before on the, uh, the, the normal podcast. And yeah, the bonus episodes, I'm trying to do two a month this year. I want to do two a month, maybe more, but I want to do like, you know, a minimum of two a month from the bonus episodes. This episode was sponsored by our friends at Oracle Coffee Company in Portland. Uh, in America, they're on the South Waterfront neighborhoods, um, 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue. Uh, they said, bring your laptops and balaclavas, try all of their uh, coffee. They're like an independent um, multi-roaster coffee company. We like them a lot. We like people doing independent stuff. So yeah, thank you very much for sponsoring the episode. Oracle Coffee Company, look them up on uh, Instagram as well. This episode is also sponsored by thedefensepost.com. That's defense with an S. Follow them for updates on the world in conflict. Again, another independent, small, I think the Americans call it mom and pop. A small mom and pop operation. So yeah, again, independent. Check them out, defensepost.com. Follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash popularfrontco. Instagram, uh, instagram.com slash popular.front. Again, like I always say, you'll have to type the whole thing in because we're shadow banned because, um, you know, Zuckerberg hates his own reflection. Um, YouTube, youtube.com slash popularfront. Subscribe, hit the bell. Um, things are going well on the socials. Like, I, it's, it's the social media, like, there's part of me that fucking hates it and part of me that likes it because you can get and talk to all people and whatever and it's helped us grow massively. Um, but it's, it's like a fucking nightmare sometimes, but it's good because we're growing on there. So, you know, really appreciate the support on there. Um, followers, subscribers, all of that. It's, it's growing up and up and up every month. So yeah, definitely. Thank you very much. Someone is putting the word out there. Really appreciate that. And I also saw, um, people sharing the, uh, Patreon link a lot more recently, which is very much appreciated. Cause like I said, the bigger we get, you know, the more stuff we can do, the more um, we can cover, cover more conflicts, get more people on board. You know, this isn't this isn't like, oh yeah, it's just a podcast, you know, it's a whole platform. We do docs, we've got articles, you know, I would love to get like an editor to do the articles and we'd have constant articles and stuff like that. So yeah, the bigger the Patreon gets, there's just gonna be more and more and more and more popular front, you know, like no one's getting like new cars or anything like that. Everything is going to popular front. Um, thank you very much to the uh, the highest tier patrons as well. They are Adam Berg Snyder, a- Amy Rupert, Andrew Hurley, Axel Iverson, Azad, Brian McLaughlin, Callum Ross, Chad Walker, Christina Rivetti, Christopher Martin, Craig Miller, Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, Diana Gorvanek, E. Louise Larson, Emiliano, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Frank Austin, Jack Mayhoff, he's just always, always there. Uh, James from the Discord, Janet Baserto, Joanne Stocker, Joel Tambusi, Josh, Juan Hernandez, uh, Jungle King Virapan, K. Hardy Roberts, Lawrence Abrahams, Lika Madik, Nate Van Dor, Noah, Ari from the Discord, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormack from What Bitcoin Did, Q-Ball, Russia Al-Akidi, uh, Rohan Abare, Rubicon, Ryan Sandercock, Scartoon Music, Sebastian from the Discord, Sentry, 
Sarushe Hawazi, Stephen Davila, STV, Tom Lochrin, Tony Bin, Vida Provost, and Zachary Hinch. Thank you all very much. I remember when we had like the first like $30 Patreon. I was like, fucking hell, that, that's crazy. Now there's like loads, you know, reading them out, everything. It's, it's really, really appreciated. Thank you very much. Um, again, you know, patreon.com slash popular front. That's the main way we fund ourselves because this is 100% independent, no corporate backing, absolutely no vulture, venture capitalist bullshit, no. Um, and also, uh, if you go to www.popularfront.shop, um, you can buy our merchandise and that helps us massively. You know, we've sold a lot of merchandise over the last six months. Um, so if you've got pictures of that, put it on your Instagram, social media, whatever, do tag us. Um, you know, and we'll put it out there as well, like if you want. Um, yeah, popularfront.shop. Music in this episode. The intro is by Home. And the outro is by Sam Black, aka Son of Old. Go to soundcloud.com slash son dash of dash old and listen to his music. I feel like I forgot something. I forgot anything. No, I don't think so. Thanks very much. Uh, next week. Yeah, I don't know. Another, another one next week. Thank you.